came home. I'm just Ken. Anywhere else I'd be a 10. Something blonde fragility. Bomb squad matinee night thing. I don't fuck. Hi, I'm Ken. Welcome to episode four of Bomb Squad Matinee. I'm your host and master ceremony, Ken. And with me, I have. Uh, hi, I'm user uh, username Citibank Plutocracy Memo. I'm actually the world record speedrun holder on the PS1 game Sentinel Returns. I bring that up because the music for that game was done by Wes Craven. Hmm. What a niche joke. And we also have. Hi, I'm a true hero. And guys, we maybe have the most special guest we have ever gotten in the history of this show. I can't believe we got him, but we have the one, the only. Introduce yourself! Yeah! M Mike, Mike, that, that was your cue, Mike. Damn, he was so funny in The Love Guru. I don't know why he's not talking. Anyway, yeah. we got Mike Myers on the show. Um, very, very special episode today, and it's good that we got Mike Myers on the show, um, <laughs> uh, of Love Guru fame, because today we're talking about Wes Craven's 1978 classic, Halloween. <laughs> it rubbed off on you! <laughs> I did it! <laughs> you got me. You got me. Hell yeah. Revenge for last week or whatever. But yeah. John Carpenter. What is this? 1978? Rock and roll? Why the fuck did I say Wes Craven? God damn it, you My motherfucker. My was a virus. A mind virus. <laughs> I confidently said Wes Craven like that was correct. Fuck. I'm just Wes. Anyway. John Carpenter's 1978 film, Halloween. But before we get into talking about Halloween... I want to get into what is your all-time favorite film score. Halloween has an iconic score that was done by John Carpenter himself. So let's get into some other one, guys, starting with Austin. All right. Um, I want to start off with something that's been, like, bonking around in my head for a while. I tried to find it again for this show so I could tell you guys more details about, like, when this happened or when this was recorded. Uh, but I'm going to act really 2018 right now and briefly talk about that dickhead, Donald Trump. Uh, there was an interview of him from, like, back in the day, uh, back when he was just some, like, rich guy in the 80s and 90s. I saw it in a compilation one time, I think. But the interviewer asked him, what do you think is the most popular thing in the world? And I actually think this is a great litmus test to see if somebody's, like, with it or not. Because uh, I'm over here where I'm like, huh, most popular thing in the world. <laughs> Oxygen, you fucking gophers. Uh, but, but then seeing as this was like before his pivot to neo-fascism and not a question about politics trump's answer was actually really solid the dude said music the most popular thing in the world is music and so i guess it sort of branches a little and from there like you've got music that people can enjoy in like a day-to-day -day context like blinding lights by the weekend or, or crazy by Narls barkley uh the music I remember that you play at parties is one thing right then there's context-dependent music, music that was made to be enjoyed in tandem with something else. And that finally gets us to film scores. So I gotta admit, the song that has followed me around the most is Knife in the Water by Christoph Kameda from the film Knife in the Water. Uh, but the rest of that score has really crazy ups and downs. 
Uh, it's not like, say, like the Miles Davis score for Elevator to the Gallows, where the whole thing is rock solid. Uh, see, it's weird, because I feel like if you're measuring by, like, the quality of a score and the number of iconic songs, <clears throat> Lord of the Rings has everybody beat by a large mile. Uh, special shout-outs, though, to Pirates of the Caribbean uh, for having one of the most fun songs ever to be in a film score, uh, The Social Network for helping me get through so much studying in college, uh, Requiem for a Dream and The Fountain, respectively, because those two movies gave birth to Lux Eterna and Death is the Road to Awe, and Rebels of the Neon God for getting that, that fucking thing stuck in my head forever. Back to you, Tanner. Excellent, excellent answers. Uh, really unexpected answers. Uh, but still rather excellent. All right. Tim, what is your favorite film score? Fuck it. Mandy. Let's go with Mandy. Oh! You uh, said the thing! I do I, I do love Mandy. The I love the score to Mandy. Uh, that was the first uh, vinyl record I got was a gift from my fiancé. Um, it's... Just incredible score. It's the final score by Johan Johansson before he passed away. Um, it really just appeals to my musical sensibilities. It has a lot of like uh, horror sounds, orchestral sounds, metal sounds, uh, industrial sounds. It's just it's something that really appeals to me, and I'd absolutely recommend uh, giving that one a listen uh johan johansson the master put his all into this one so check it out back to you tanner excellent excellent pick all right mike myers is there a, is there a you guys can hear me just fine right yeah i can hear you okay um we'll get back to you later i guess um i do just want to say this really quick uh joe Vrenick, who could not be here tonight due to a prior commitment uh, wanted to make sure we said that E.T. the Extraterrestrial has the greatest film score of all time. Um, so I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily agree with that, but it is up there for me. Um, there are so many answers I can. Mike Myers approves. There are so many answers I could put out there for this, um, and it's kind of a tough pick. Um, you could say something obvious like a Star Wars, and for me specifically, the best Star Wars score is actually the Phantom Menace's score. I think that's when John Williams was at the peak of his powers. Nice. Um, that was my first CD. Oh, awesome! That fucking rules. Um, a duel of the I fates. I wanted is, that duel of fates, man. I duel, wanted that shit playing all the time. Duel of the fates might be the singular greatest piece of music John Williams has composed in his illustrious career. Synergy. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, it may be up there for me. I could say that. I could say um, Danny Elfman's Spider-Man score. It's definitely up there for me. Um, another score I really appreciate that I've been playing a lot lately is James Horner's score for the first The Amazing Spider-Man movie. That one's up there for me. But when I really sat down and thought about this question, I had to think about, well, who's my favorite composer in movies other than John Williams? And the answer to that was Alan Silvestri. And when it comes to what's my favorite Alan Silvestri score... No, what? Oh, okay. Damn, I can't I can't do this shit a cappella at all. Back to the Future. The Back to the Future score is my all-time favorite film score. That little thing that starts at the movies with that You know that little like little quick little like like piano riff thing? I don't know what you call it. 
It's iconic. It's beautiful. It's perfect. Um, and then when it gets bombasterous and bomboisterous and Mr. Bombastic, but <laughs> when it gets real shaggy up in there, when you know that whole and listen, there are some pieces of music that make you want to do things. The score for Back to the Future, the main theme of Back to the Future makes me run want, makes me want to run through a fucking brick wall. Like I am ready to do anything if I'm listening to the score to Back to the Future. When it goes, I feel like I could take on like I could take on a shooter in a fight with my bare hands. Hell yeah. If the Back to the Future theme was playing, all right? I don't know why I went with a shooter. Um that is not an invitation. That is not you get it, you get it! Oh, it's perfect. <laughs> Great Scott. Fucking excellent pick. Yeah. But we can all agree here that maybe the best horror movie score of all time, maybe not Tim since, since Mandy's a horror movie, but at least up there amongst the best horror scores of all time is the score for the first Halloween. Huh. Yeah. Which is what we're talking about today. So, overall thoughts on Halloween. We're gonna start with the guest, Mike Myers! How the fuck did this asshole make three Austin Powers movies? Tim! Halloween. It's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I... As far as, like, John Carpenter movies go, I don't rank this one especially high. Like, I think I'm... I'm definitely more interested in The Thing. Uh, like, that's far and away, I think, his best movie. Um, but I do, I do think that his direction in this movie is really great. And I think that's what makes it, uh, stand so far above the sequels that would come later. Um, it doesn't quite do what I want a slasher to do, which is, you know, show, show the killing. Um, a lot of killing. Uh, it's, it's, it's got, it's got some kills, but, uh, they, they don't scratch that slasher itch for me personally, but, uh, this does have a lot of, like, great character stuff going, and it's, like, a very solid, like, foundation for what would become the slasher genre. Uh, and, like, there were there were slashers that came before it. Uh, you know, you got your Black Christmas, uh, you got your Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but this was, like, the movie that really, like, made it, like, a household thing. Like, this is... We, we, we gotta get a kill quota in there. We gotta, we gotta have a mass killer... Um, so it's, it's definitely like a really strong start to, um, that sort of subgenre of horror, uh, Mike Myers, Michael Myers, the, let, let's, let's put some respect on his name. Uh, Michael Myers is, uh, he's, he's an interesting, uh, character cause he is that sort of like boogeyman, uh, who's mysterious, uh. You know, no, no back, no backstory that makes him tragic. Uh, uh, Rob Zombie would never uh, examine him so thoroughly. Um, but uh, no. yeah, <laughs> this is the worst shit I've um, ever seen. Honestly, Rob yeah. Zombie's Halloween One is watchable. Rob Zombie's Halloween Two might be in the bottom ten movies I have seen in my fucking life. It is unwatchably bad. In a franchise that a has while. Halloween Resurrection, somehow Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 is the worst. I, I, It's been a while since I've seen Rob's Halloween 2. I personally hate Resurrections more, but um, both bad. Yeah, um, Resurrections but, is kind of funny bad to me, though. 
that's that's fair. Uh, but this movie, pretty good, pretty, pretty good. Solid. Um, and I I will probably have more things to say in general discussion. So I'm gonna pass it back off to you, Mr. Tanner. Yeah, man. Uh, I'm, can we all retroactively say that Jamie Lee Curtis won her Oscar for this movie? <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> Makes more sense. <laughs> I like her performance in EEAAO just fine, but. I mean, come on. I think this is. Yeah, come on. Austin, what yeah. do you think of the most classic slasher film of all time? Yeah, the, the one. Actually, I just rewatched the raft scene from The Burning a bunch of times, and instead of watching. <laughs> you know what? Close enough. Uh, f- uh, fun fact Halloween, this movie, has something in common with A Quiet Place, Resident Evil Retribution, and Sweeney Todd. Do you know what it is? Uh... I never would have guessed it, but the original Halloween is a love baby. It's a couples movie. Director John Carpenter and writer-producer Deborah Hill were totally dating when they put this together. That surprised me. Uh, Nice. I would have never guessed that. Like a couple made this. Ugh. But uh, Halloween is sort of in that same, like, film canon as stuff like The Blair Witch Project, Paranormal Activity, Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's one of those dream situations where somebody hit the fucking jackpot on the penny slot machine. Adjusted for 2023 inflation, these are not the original numbers, but just to put it in perspective, Halloween was made for today's equivalent of $1.5 million. And back then, it made $330 million at the box office. That is, you know... You can look up the original numbers, but that's the equivalent of what it did. Uh, This success boiled up very slowly over the course of like three or four months, Uh, starting off with some miraculous word of mouth coming out of film premiere Ground Zero, our very own Kansas City, Missouri. Let's hear it for Missouri. Let's go! Fuck Kansas City, but let's go! (laughs) Interestingly enough, on the DVD commentary, John Carpenter contributed some of this film's initial success to the recent Jonestown Massacre, which took place 24 days into Halloween's initial theatrical run. It's hard to speculate about What the fuck, John? I'm sorry, but what the fuck? (laughs) That's weird. (laughs) It's hard. It's hard for me to speculate about events that took place 16 years before I was born. Uh, But I think around-the-clock news coverage of a madman that killed 304 children uh, really primed the public to be frightened of a movie about a knife murderer who stalks his prey on Halloween night. Uh, Another funny thing I learned about the release of Halloween was that critical reception was initially quite negative towards this film. Uh, The LA Times called it well-made, but empty and morbid. Uh, The Washington Post wrote, One tends to wish the killer would get on with it. Uh, Carpenter remarked on the commentary that it was actually Tom Allen's Village Voice review that, like, turned the tide, where this dude compared it to films like Psycho and Night of the Living Dead. This led to, like, positive reviews all of a sudden from people like Gene Siskel, Roger Ebert, Andrew Saris. Although... In classic Pauline Kale fashion, uh, she still ripped Halloween to fucking shreds four months after the tide turned and everyone was swimming in cash, having a great time. Uh, but what can you expect from the critic who disliked Terrence Malick's Badlands and Ingmar Bergman's Wild Strawberries? 
Uh, I bring all this up because longtime viewers of the show and film studies type people will remember uh, John Carpenter being completely fucking raked over the coals for his 1982 horror masterpiece, The Thing. And it was kind of gratifying reading about a similar negative critical consensus that had its course corrected by a combination of, like, academic peer pressure and sheer box office success. And unlike what happened with The Thing, it took, like, less than a month instead of, like, half a decade. Um, as somebody who's, like, I'm going to admit this is my first time watching this movie in completion. As someone who's watching Whoa! <laughs> as someone who's watching this movie for the first time in 2023, there, to me, were two really standout elements. The cinematography by Dean Cundy, the industry legend who would go on to lens, Back to the Future, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Jurassic Park... Uh, and, oh, shit. And John Carpenter's score, uh, composed in 5-4 time signature over the course of only three days. Fuck. Uh, the cinematography gimmick is kind of simple to describe, but anybody who's ever, like, made a film knows it's no small thing to execute. You've got these wide, surprisingly deep shots set in the suburbs of South Pasadena. And then as the film goes on, the shots get more claustrophobic until eventually you're stuck in a closet with, the, with a fucking maniac breaking down the door. Apparently the production didn't have enough money to shoot conventional coverage. Um, so while it must have been a bitch at the time to shoot it this way, I think the stricter shot list works really miraculously in the, uh, the finished product. Uh, save for one shot of Jamie Lee Curtis dropping a knife in a really regrettable wide shot where the camera is only close enough to see the awkward choreography, but not close enough to, like, emphasize the fairly important look of repulsion on her face. And and as for the score, that's value. Uh, the value of that can be easily highlighted with a popular antidote from post-production. Apparently, John Carpenter sent uh, the, the film over to Erwin Yablons, the producer, three days before the music was made, or uh, before the three days the music was made. Yablins, like, really didn't get it. He thought the film was about as scary as, like, two kittens fighting over a bowl of milk. Uh, but then the score was laid in, and the whole thing really came together. More than most films, mm. Halloween isn't frightening until the score comes in. Yablins recalls, like, seeing young people in screenings, like, covering their ears during the tense moments. And he went on to ask his son, like, why the hell are they clamping their ears, dude? And the kid replied, it's because the sound is too scary. Other than those two things, I really had to lean on putting the film in historical context in order to appreciate it. It's kind of slow. The acting isn't that much special. Uh, Michael's not even a frightening antagonist anymore now that we've got stuff like like the demon from Smile and, and even Freddy Krueger six years later. This might be one of those rare cases where Seinfeld actually isn't funny. <laughs> Unlike The Exorcist, I was able to watch this alone in the dark by myself, and I wasn't even, like, a little bit jumpy for the rest of the evening. The last 15 minutes of Halloween are admittedly a big leap forward in, like, scare value, but nowadays, this feels more like a prototype than anything else. So, in closing, Halloween is late 70s eye candy with a, a really iconic score, but I think its cult classic status is more out of appreciation for, like, what it was and what came after, rather than its overall value as a retro horror film for today's audiences specifically. But unlike Pauline Kale, I'm allowed to say these negative things about the movie because I don't have a super long record of shitting on Kubrick movies. Back to you, Tanner. All right, a pop quiz, Austin. Name a movie Pauline Kale liked. Name a movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh... 
<laughs> you can't, motherfucker! I'm, my head is stocked full of movies she's famous for not liking. Oh my god, am I a misogynist? <laughs> Fuck! Got him. It's over. It's Jover. Real quick, uh, John Carpenter recently made a quote where he's just like, I don't want to be a master of horror. I want to eat Cheetos and play video games. King. And knowing that both this movie and The Thing got, like, roasted to shit, I don't blame him. I get play it. Play your video games, man. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. I get it. All right. <laughs> this is one of the greatest horror movies ever made, in my opinion. Um... I think, unlike Austin here, I think it still holds up. I think the fact that it holds back in the kills, much like the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre does, makes the kills that much more frightening and scary. For me, though, unlike the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a movie I also love to bits, and also, by the way, sound is what makes that movie work, and sound is what makes Halloween work. What's scary mm. isn't what you see, it's what you hear. Um, that has always been one of my fundamental opinions about horror. That's why the movie Smile almost works for me. A lot of that is in the sound design. That's why a movie like The Boogeyman from earlier this year really fucked with me. That's why the movie Talk to Me made me piss my pants. A lot of it is sound design. And Halloween has one of the best sound design landscapes in the history of horror movies. Just from the way the wind rustles, the way that you hear Michael Myers stepping on things, it's terrifying. It's scary. On a technical level, of course, the cinematography is really spectacular. I love it. Uh, full disclosure, by the way, I meant to rewatch this today. I didn't. I watched the Five Nights at Freddy's movie instead. Damn! Whoops. Um, <laughs> but let me tell you, watching a movie like Five Nights at Freddy's really makes you appreciate Halloween a lot more. Um, <laughs> for its subtlety. <laughs> um, Jesus. I'm just roasting FNAF over here. Um Michael Myers is such a beautifully imposing, terrifying figure. Just the way he stands there and, and the way the mask makes his eyes feel empty. It's like, There is something that a lot of the sequels have gotten wrong, which is by, they use cheap masks. And Michael Myers looks like a fucking phony carny instead of this imposing, terrifying figure. But the original mask... When it looks like his eyes, it's not even that his eyes are black. It looks like, it makes it look like his eyes are shadows. Yeah. It's terrifying. It is horrifying. And it's because, unlike a lot of other slasher movie villains, even more than Leatherface, and obviously more than Jason, or um, obviously more than Jason or uh, a Freddy, obviously, Michael Myers feels like a human. He more than anyone else feels like a human. And and I, I kind of talk about this in the Halloween ends episode, why I think that is the best Halloween movie since Halloween. Michael isn't special. He's just a guy. That's what makes Michael horrifying. He could be your neighbor. He could be your plumber. He could be your teacher. He could be your father. He could be anyone. He's just a guy in a jumpsuit and a mask. That wants to kill people. He could be lurking around every corner. And that's what makes it horrifying. Out of all of the slasher villains, he doesn't come from a family of cannibals. He's not some weird fuckhead that screws with teenagers that have sex in a lake. He's not some burn victim that shows up in your dreams. He's a man, flesh and bone, standing there with a knife in his hand. And I can't think of anything more that expresses why Michael Myers, to me, is the best antagonist in horror movie history. That's why I love this movie. 
That's why this movie is a masterpiece. That's why it will always forever hold up for me. Also, Laurie Strode is one of the best scream queens of all time. Uh, just her sheer badassery. And again, like the best of scream queens, she's just a woman, flesh and bone. The sequels, especially Halloween 2, immediately takes it into slightly silly territory by retconning them to be siblings, which I don't hate, but I don't like either. But again, it's the yeah. beauty of this one. Lori <laughs> Strode just happened to be there. She just happened to be there. It could have been anyone. It's the sheer simplicity of it. It's the sheer mundaneness of it that gets under your skin. Because when you go to bed tonight and you close your eyes, you don't know if you're going to wake up in the middle of the night and Michael Myers is just going to be standing outside your window. I love Halloween. It is, to me, the best slasher movie ever made. And I do not think another movie in the slasher genre will ever surpass it. It is the prototype, like Austin said. But it feels like 45 years later, people are still trying to rip it off and they're failing. That's why I love it. All right. On to the commercial break. Welcome back from the ad break for, in fact... An ad. <gasps> Moviepalette.com. You can't. It's dark in here. You can't see the. You can kind of see. Not the point. Go to Moviepalette.com. You can find one for Halloween. You can find one for fucking schmooza nooza. I don't know why I'm talking in his accent, but I'm talking in his accent now. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. You can get one for Midnight Cowboy if you want, I bet. Uh, <laughs> Moviepalette.com. Use the code SQUAD15 to save 15% or more on car and To save 15% on your order. It's a cool place. Buy a pallet. Have fun. Now, on to some general discussion. Does anyone have anything they would like to say? Mike Myers, perhaps? I'm starting to think this guy's a fake. Man, this guy was an inglorious bastards. Uh, why do you guys think David Gordon Green could deal with Halloween but not The Exorcist? Why did he, why did he kind of pull off one and totally fuck up the other? I think a lot of it has to do with what I was talking about with this movie. It's the simplicity of it. It's the mundaneness. Exorcist, that's a demon. Yeah. There's a bunch of lore. It's an ancient demon. There's like ghosts and shit. There's past. There's so much going on. Halloween, it's a guy in a jumpsuit with a knife. That's a bit harder to fuck up. And quite How frankly- go from like decently- competent screenplay to I wasn't allowed in the room was probably because of the patriarchy though. How does that happen? Uh, did David Gordon Green even write it? That's a good point. I have no idea. I, 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 I did Danny McBride help write Exorcist actually? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's because maybe that's the secret sauce having McBride had co-write it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Once you separate the two, the magic kind of poofs away. Um, yeah, because the Halloween remakes, don't they have, like, I got peanut butter on my penis? Don't they actually have their share of throwaway kind of dumb lines? They have some silly lines, but, like, none of them are as stupid as the patriarchy line in Exorcist Believer, or whatever the fuck it's called. What, what is it? Nothing quite reaches that level of dumb. So, you know that shot where Donald Pleasance is, like, out in the middle of nowhere near a phone booth, and there's, like, a train that goes into the shot, right? Probably not a shot you remember. It doesn't stand out that much. But either way, like, Carpenter and Hill were really stoked about this 
because there was a train and uh, it reminded me of the the scene in jj abrams film super 8 where the little kid is stoked about the train he's like production value and it was just one of those nice little <laughs> indie film accidents and i actually got a few like a little list of these little accidents that are now in really famous films if you guys want to want to hear oh yeah three. give me them i'm ready okay so the godfather the, the cat on Don Corleone's lap. The fucking cat. That was a cat walking around the studio. And then at the last second, somebody was like, here, put this cat on Marlon Brando. And it's in the movie for all time. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's nuts. Holy shit. The, the, the fucking montage in Rocky where he's training, right? Eventually, Tanner, you might know this. Fucking somebody tosses him an orange. Does that sound familiar? Like catches a fucking orange. Oh yeah, yeah. That's like one of the most iconic moments in Rocky. None of the extras knew what the fuck was going on. Some dude actually just threw an orange at the guy. He tossed an orange to Sly Stallone. That and was Sly was like, "Yeah, let's go. That's rules. Oh my god." And then to hearken it back to a bit Tanner literally just did. Dustin Hoffman, Midnight Cowboy, I'm walking here. Not planned. He almost oh, yeah. really got hit by a car. That was like an actual cabbie driver that like actually, like, from what I understand, just drove past the PA that was like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> just sped past him like, I got places to be. I'm, I'm New Yorker. I'm a New Yorker. I got places to be. <laughs> but yeah, those are, those are a few examples where the film gods were like smiling on you. And the best this film got was a train to hang out with Donald Pleasance. I mean, we'd all be stoked about a train. Fucking love I mean, Halloween. I love that band. Hey, Soul Sister, Drops of Jupiter. Those are some great songs. Yeah, Calling All Angels. They used to play at the pool all the time. That is also a great song. <laughs> Someone doesn't like train, I guess. Finally, some commentary from the gallery. <laughs> Mike Myers of Love Guru fame and Bohemian Rhapsody fame doesn't like train. <laughs> Uh, what is it? Apparently, the little kids singing that spooky song over the Haddonfield, Illinois, 1963 title card in the beginning was inspired by the opening of Dario Argento's Deep Red. Uh, that movie's got what? the scene in the middle of the opening credits where this goblin track, School at Night, Lullaby Child version plays. And it's creepy kids singing as someone's getting stabbed on, I think, fucking Christmas. But John Carpenter saw that shit and was like, children have to sing and that that's kind of where that came from this movie has some like kind of scattered horror influences from films john carpenter liked like uh eyes without a face anyone ever seen eyes without a face the 1960s film uh maybe once when i was a teenager it's it's like some french shit he's he was retroactively trying to think why did i do a michael myers mask and apparently it was based on, I think, the character of Christine in Ice Without a Face. It's some spooky, like, car accident victim who's just got to wear this, like, ghoulish white mask. And he thinks that maybe was what inspired him, maybe. But You know what? That reminds me, um, because I think the actual reason why he picked the white mask is, uh, this is a famous tab tidbit, but uh, people are going to be in the comments like, why did you bring this up? If we don't bring this up, we all know... What the Michael Myers mask is a mask of, right? Whose face it is? I wanted to hear you say it, though, because you're affiliated with Bill Shatner in a way none of us I are. Am, yeah, I have been shat upon before. There we go. William Shatner. It's a William Shatner mask. Um, and personally, I think uh, John Carpenter was inspired because William Shatner just looks that horrifying. <laughs> yeah, there we go. He saw Shatner doing Rocket Man and was like, go to the costume store. 
I'm a, like smoking a cigarette. I'm a rocket man. Rocket man. Burning out his fuse up here alone. I love doing Shatner on songs. I, I've heard recently on like a meme page, Dr. Loomis compared to Mermaid Man from SpongeBob because the dude just rides in and it's like, evil! And <laughs> just similar characters. I thought that ruled. It does rule. No, I love that. Uh, remember in Halloween Kills when like they fucking did a fucking prosthetic recreation of Donald Plus? I'm sorry to keep bringing up movies we've done episodes on, but... <laughs> We're back at the source. We have to, you know, make it all come full circle. I thought that Dr. Loomis looked great. It did. I I was sitting there thinking, did they get his son? What the fuck? Weird, weird brain connections here. Uh, who's the fucker who played Grand Moff Tarkin? Peter Cushing, right? Yeah, Peter Cushing. Are you talking yeah. about in episode three, though, though the how, how thick his head looks because of the prosthetic work? No, they were going to get Peter Cushing for this movie, and he turned it down. He was one of the two people they, they tried to get before Donald Pleasance. And Peter Cushing was also revived in a movie, but it looked like shit. Unlike when Loomis yeah. was revived and it didn't look like well, shit. Cushing was revived once and it didn't look bad. At the end of episode three of The Phantom Menace, you see what's supposed to be a young Tarkin. That's fair. Um, And that they did with prosthetic work. In Rogue One, oh, I'll never forget it. Seeing it in the reflection and I thought, oh, that's cute. They're going to have him say a few lines, but they're going to keep it in the reflection to pay respect. That's really cute. Oh, God. Wait. Why is he turning around? Why is he turning around? No. (laughs) Then I had to deal with that for 20 minutes. It was, let me tell you, best looking Call of Duty game of all time. Yeah, I'm not going to tell my kids about Icarus flying close to the sun. I'm going to talk about the VFX people working on that fucking digital. Yeah. Working on Rogue One. It looks exactly the same like Kevin Spacey does in that one Call of Duty game. That's, that's like same place. fidelity to me. Um, what are we? What movie are we talking about again? A movie Halloween. Five Nights at Freddy's. A movie that was partially based on a true story, kind of. Trust me, Wait, bro. Was this like? Because like I know Leatherface is based off of that like one Minnesota serial killer. What true story yeah. is this based Ed off Gein, of? Or is right? or is it the same guy? Is it also Ed Gein? No, get this. You'll never you'll never expect it because um when I say based off a true story, imagine like the opening title card of the Fargo series. So when John John Carpenter was a student at Western Kentucky University, his psychology class like went on a field trip to a local mental institution. And apparently there was just what? this like twelve year old there with evil eyes like imagine just fucking like you know 19 year old john carpenter walking in on this 13 year old mental patient apparently just scared the shit out of him like somewhere in kentucky there was a kid who was so evil and inspired the loomis speech about mike myers and that kid's name ladies and gentlemen was mitch mcconnell fucking (laughs) real thing that happened though that actually happened when john carpenter was younger (laughs) Uh, I, I, Mitch McConnell, I'm sorry, I thought it was Chuck Grassley. <laughs> Let's just keep bringing up geriatric senators. I thought it was. Hmm. Wait, shit, sorry, that's half the Senate. <laughs> we truly live yeah. in a gerontocracy. We live in a society. You, you know how, like, they're watching movies in this, like, the thing from another world in Forbidden Planet? Yeah. Uh, th- that was actually John Carpenter's personal collection of one-inch videotapes. Like, I think, like, C-type tapes. Because get this, VHS was only introduced in 1977, like a year before this was filmed. 
Very expensive, very new. I guess John Carpenter just had, like, some broadcast tapes or something of the thing from Another World and, uh, fucking Forbidden Planet. But it's, like, so unusual that this dude had tapes of movies that could be played back on set. That was rare That's for crazy. So, before, uh... Friday the 13th did this. This movie actually depicts a pretty common slasher trope, albeit accidentally. Sick. You notice that the the only notice the only teenagers that get killed are the ones trying to fuck? Yeah. Yeah. John Carpenter and uh Deborah Hill insist up and down that was an accident. Yeah. It had nothing to do with purity and everything to do with the fact that the ones trying to fuck were too busy trying to fuck while Laurie Strode was like a little bit more aware. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like every piece of media that covers this, where John Carpenter or Deborah Hill speak their piece, usually covers, there were like film analysts at the time who were like, is this conservative? And they, that's just such a sad accident to fall backward into because they were a couple. They probably like to fucking smoke weed, but they accidentally started this very Reagan era fucking, you know, um, <laughs> trope. If, if you get laid, you know, well, eventually it led to Scream. It, it all, it's all good because eventually yeah. this all led to Scream. Every, all roads lead to Scream. <laughs> the good stuff and the bad. There you, go. you guys, uh. Fun, fun fact, Jamie Lee Curtis was the only actual teenager in the cast. What? Yeah, I, I remember the first time I watched this, I thought she was like a grown ass adult. No. Because she just sounded so much more mature. But she was like 19. She was 19 years old when they filmed this. People used to look old back in the day. Like, shit. Yeah. I look younger than she did, I think. Well, I mean, we're not constantly exposed to secondhand smoke every second of the day. Yeah. But maybe we should start doing that. You know what's so fucked up? Remember smoking sections at restaurants? What the fuck was the point of that shit? Oh, we'll put you on this side of the glass barrier. To the younger audience, there used to be a time where you were allowed to just openly light up at restaurants. Uh, us in this room are probably amongst the last people to actually experience that. Yeah. Because uh, that really got phased out yeah. probably by the t- before Obama was even president. I feel like that got phased out. Yeah. That feels like it was a Bush administration thing, oddly enough. Um, There's actually a wisp of cigarette smoke. During the scene where Mike Myers was hiding behind the hedge and Lori and the fucking, like, her friend, like, her friend starts dunking on her because Michael disappears. You can see this errant little bit of cigarette smoke that came from John Carpenter and it's in the frame in the final movie. (laughs) I'm glad. Uh, Okay, hold on. Why didn't you tell me who the other person they approached to play Loomis was other than Cushing? Uh, Probably because I couldn't remember his name off the top of my head. Uh, you might know him best as Count Dooku. Sir Christopher Lee was apparently also approached to... Wow, two iconic that, actors that did a lot of horror stuff, both rejecting this part. Yeah, yeah that makes sense that they would go for both of them because they were both, like, big hammer actors. They, they were both in, like, one of... I'm pretty sure one of each of them is in, like, Hammer's first 20 movies. <laughs> yeah. A- apparently, If not both in a lot of them. Carpenter later ran into Lee at a party and he said he regretted not taking the role because of what it did for Donald Pleasance's career. But I mean, he went on to be Christopher Lee doing all the stuff. No, that yeah. Did, so. Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, they turned out okay. They both got to be in Star Wars. Donald Pleasance didn't get to be in Star Wars. But that Who won? Funny. No. <laughs> um, Hold on. Actually, did does uh, Star Wars predate Halloween? 
Yeah, right? Yep, 77. 77, shit. Okay, that's crazy. They feel like they're in different universes to me. God, when you said they, they made them siblings in the second one, all I could think of was Star Wars. <laughs> you were describing <laughs> Halloween 2. No, sorry, they did that in the third one. They made them siblings in the third one. If you remember, Luke and Leia kiss in the second one. Oh! Uh, man, man I, I think I downloaded the wrong Halloween. Michael Myers and Laurie Strode start kissing, and then they start fucking? I think I downloaded the wrong Halloween. She was Halloween like, what are you doing, Step Slasher? <laughs> Man, I want to pivot to something almost as inappropriate. Um, oh, good. <laughs> so so you want to know how they killed the dog? Fucking, apparently, sure. Lester, Nick Castle, the guy who plays Michael, right? He was scared of the barking dog Lester, like on set. He was, get that thing away from me! Like the dog was apparently freaking him out. So in order to like get the shot of them choking out the dog without actually hurting the dog. They whipped out the photosonics. They whipped out the overcranking. They got the slow-mo cameras, baby. Then they had the animal handler just pick up the doggo and his legs floop down. But in slow motion, it looks like the doggo's getting choked out. So in case any of you wanna wanna kill a doggo, slow motion might be the answer. But yeah, that's how they achieved that without yeah. any animal cruelty. Yeah, there we go. We were talking about slasher tropes that uh, this inspired. This this also may have inspired some anime tropes because we see Laurie Strode look in the back uh, of the classroom looking out the mirror at the killer. That's like episode one of every shonen anime. Yep. Uh, it is. Holy shit, it is, isn't it? Um, something I like to bring up is that for years after this movie came out, John Carpenter, people would walk up to him and be like, oh God, the most scary part of Halloween is when Michael Myers removes his mask for a moment and you see that fucked up disfigured face. Yeah. And every time John Carpenter's like, that's funny, because it's not. That's just the yeah. that's just the that's just the guy's face. We didn't it's do anything except put a little small, small little knife wound on his face because of Lori's cut. Other than that, it's just his face. John Carpenter yeah. is a lot nicer than me, uh, in which he gives these audience members the benefit of the doubt by saying that's the power of suggestion. No, nah, I think they're just calling him ugly, man. I think they're just calling him ugly. Was his eye really I like mean, that? I remember he had like a swollen eye, right? It might. There might have been some light makeup work, but for the most part, it's just a small cut, from what I understand. Like I haven't. I didn't watch it on like VHS or something. Maybe back in the day, it was like less clear because there was less restoration on it. But like every time I've seen it, it's just like this is just this is just a guy. You just see a guy for a few seconds. <laughs> you know who? You know who dressed Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie? Who dressed her like the like the work? <laughs> or I guess what dressed her? What dressed yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis? No. J.C. Penney's. Oh, just grabbing the J.C. Penney's fit. Damn. Yeah, yeah. It's for the most part, all the actors just wore their own clothes. This movie cost three hundred thousand dollars, like Austin was talking about before. Half of that budget was for the camera. <laughs> 320,000. <laughs> Half of so it was fun. just to rent the camera. They, they, they did not have a costume department. They couldn't afford one. Another 20,000 just went to Donald Pleasance. They filmed this in 20 days, and they had to devote a whole single one of their 20 days to filming the opening shot. Just the opening shot. Ugh, such a tight schedule. Yeah. 
Uh, At least I, that's that's forgivable because that's like a big complicated shot. That's not the dollying in on bacon thing you were talking about with the Exorcist. Also, for the record, uh, I think you're slightly incorrect, Austin. The opening POV shot is that what you're talking about? That actually took two days to film. I always heard one from all the the behind the scenes stuff. Where you from what I do? maybe it was like a day and a half or something. It, it took or maybe some time to dress the house because. That house, in real life, that set, was a fucked up house. It did take them a day to, like, make it look like a normal house for the parts the camera was going through. I, I, I think this there's a lot of great stories about the low budget kind of forcing these beautiful artistic decisions. Because I think a lot of people agree the lighting of this movie is how sparse it is leads to a really fantastic atmosphere. Uh, you may think, wow, it's so smart of John Carpenter to hold back. No, they couldn't afford lights. They didn't have enough. They didn't have enough money for lights. They were forced to do that. I heard from someone, and yet it's iconic. The shadows are iconic. I heard from someone that this was yeah. the movie that like kind of popularized the blue backlighting in horror movies. Cannot confirm. I've got something kind of gratifying. So, so when this film was finished, they took it to USC, the school where John Carpenter went, and UCLA before it was like premiered in Kansas City. The USC kids spent the entire Q and A session afterward just roasting John Carpenter like fuck this this sucks and at the UCLA screening a third of the attendees just walked out so yeah this this confirms it film school audiences aren't known for being clued into what a successful film looks like uh I like to bring this up just because like oh a great example of an actor actors bring Actors are more than just doing the part, you know. Sometimes they have a lot of really good creative ideas to add to the movie. My favorite example of this is Donald Pleasance at the end of this movie when he looks out the window and he sees that um, Michael Myers' his body is gone. Mm -hmm. John Carpenter wanted Donald Pleasance to look surprised. Donald Pleasance thought, I think it's more interesting if he has a face that says, I knew this was going to happen. They shot yeah. both takes. And John Carpenter liked Pleasance's idea more. Mm -hmm. And I think that's iconic. The, the, just Donald Pleasance being like, of course. Because that is the most supernatural thing about Michael Myers is this seemingly invulnerability. But again, yeah. I think that just adds to the mystique of it, you know? And so I really like Halloween Ends, guys. Sorry. <laughs> um, this ties back into Halloween Ends with the Corey Cunningham character. Much like how Michael Myers can be anyone, Corey Cunningham furthers that idea. The shape could be anyone yeah. just like how with spider-man anyone can put on the mask anyone can be the shape right even uh even donald pleasant <laughs> loomis could be the shape he could be uh, he could be this I isn't there a this... bit in one of the sequels where he stabs someone or am i misremembering get your ass away from that front door <laughs> yeah donald <laughs> you know it's, the funny thing about dr loomis and these uh, halloween franchises the original Halloween to me is the best slasher movie ever. Yet, out of all the slasher franchises, even though Halloween to me has the best movie out of all of them, it might just be the worst franchise. There are some stinkers. <sighs> Halloween 5, I, 6, Resurrection, Rob Zombies 2. It, there's some bad stinkers, but I think there are more good ones than there are in a lot of the other slashers. There's just a lot of bad slashers. There's a lot of bad, but I think Halloween has some of the lowest lows. I don't think any slasher franchise gets as bad as Resurrection or Zombie 2. Yeah, that's fair. Like, even, like, 
Friday the 13th, a franchise which famously doesn't get good until the third movie. <laughs> um, even that one is like, it never truly gets as bad as Resurrection does. I, I have something I want to enter into show canon because this has popped up a lot on the show. Uh, this is another one of those movies where the big actor was only in it because one of their kids asked. Just like Lord of the Rings, just like Mario. Wait, it, Don, that's why Donald Pleasance is in it? Yep, his kid was like try, an aspiring rock and roll musician, right? He had a daughter, and she really liked the music in Assault on Precinct 13 and was like, Dad, you gotta work with John Carpenter. And that's why he took the film. So That rules! Hell yeah. Add it to the toll. Can we uh, talk about uh, when Laurie is driving in this movie, a very iconic song plays in this movie that I feel like this movie introduced this song to a lot of people. A blue, blue oyster coats. Don't fear. The Reaper is one of the most baller fucking songs of all time. Isn't it? Oh yeah. I couldn't believe when it was like playing in the movie. This is my first time seeing it. I was like, how'd they get the rights? And it could have just been before the movie. That song wouldn't have cost as much money. Yeah, that's the thing. This movie made don't and don't feel the Reaper was not an unpopular song before this. This movie made it. This movie is the reason why you still remember it forty years later. God, I love that fucking. It's not like Blue Oyster Cult is a particularly renowned recording group. More cowbell. I got a favor, and the the only cure is more cowbell. That is maybe the worst walking impression of all time. (laughs) Yeah, even Mike Myers agrees. Uh, it's bold to do a walk-in impression live, though. I couldn't do it. Uh, what, one weird fact, okay? So this was actually not picked up by any of the distributors. Like, fucking Columbia, Fox, everyone turned it down, actually. No one picked it up from Compass International. Prints for the initial release, right? The initial theatrical release only existed because Compass co-founder Joseph Wolf knew a dude at MGM who owed him a favor. He walked into MGM and said, hey, can I have 400 prints of my movie? And the dude gave it to him. Joseph Wolf gets shit done. What was the favor? That rules. Final thoughts. Mike Myers. What the fuck? What the fuck? He can't even be Okay. Whatever. Fuck you, I guess. All right, whatever. Um, Austin, final thoughts. Go. Halloween gave us lots of things. Jamie Lee Curtis, John Carpenter's famous Halloween theme, and the very slasher genre as we know it today. This film walked so that Nightmare on Elm Street could run, and later Wes Craven's screen could, like, fucking moonwalk across the graduation stage, right? I appreciate what (laughs) Halloween did for movies, but goddamn, is it sort of boring to me. Uh, Viewers, beware. It is no Exorcist. It's no Psycho, but it is an important part of film canon. I cannot deny that, even if it's probably not going to scare anybody today who's older than 10 years old, maybe. Back to you, Tanner. All right. I see how it is. I'm sorry. I see how it is, Austin. I've done it. Not anyone older than 10 years old. Meanwhile, just 20 minutes ago, I was like, this is one of the most horrifying movies. All right, fuck you too, buddy. Tim! It's pretty good. Um, Yeah. Uh, Check it out if you you want to see some slasher history. Uh, Or if you're a fan of John Carpenter's work, uh, it's it's a a solid flick. That's all I got. Back to you. All right. Well, 
Uh, to me, this is the greatest slasher movie ever made. It's a beautiful work of art. It is not John Carpenter's best movie. Unfortunately, that probably still does go to the thing. Uh, but Halloween is a close second for me. It is a masterstroke of the slasher genre. It is so horrifying. It gets under your skin because of just how simple it is. Michael Myers could have been anyone or anything. But you want to know who else? Michael Myers could be. Who? Who? You! The person watching slash listening to this episode of Bomb Squad Matinee. Thank you. Oh, oh, so very much for watching. We really appreciate it. If you are uh, listening to this on any uh, platforms, Ron, thank you also very much for listening. We really appreciate it. If you are um, reading, if you're reading this, impressive work. But if you're... um. Watching this on uh, YouTube, thank you also very much for watching. Go down in the comment section below and let me know what's your favorite slasher movie? What, do you, what is your favorite John Carpenter movie? What do you think of John Carpenter's Halloween? And finally, what is your favorite film score? And also, pee-pee-poo-poo-butt? Comment below and let me know. Yeah. And while you're down there, uh, go down to the description and mosey on down to our Patreon. Throw some money our way. Austin is so hungry. We need to feed the poor boy. I haven't eaten in weeks. It's just like Oliver Twist. And while you are also down there, once you're done donating us to our Patreon, hit the like button so we know how much you like us. Hit the subscribe button so we know how much you love us. And hit the bell icon so you know exactly when we upload new videos. Thank you again, Oso, very much for watching. Tune in next week when we talk about what is, in my opinion, the best Christmas movie ever made. Released in 2003, directed by Jon Favreau before Iron Man fame. We're talking about the Will Fair vehicle, Elf. It's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait. We'll see you then. All right. Thank you again so very much for watching. Tune in next week. All right. Bye. Bye. All right. All right. Finally, I can blow out the fucking candles. Honestly, it looked fucking great on your end. I'm sure it did. Um, I just got wax all over my thumb. <laughs> all right. Alexa, turn on the lights in the living room. And here I can switch to the what? What the fuck? Oh, shit! Oh, fuck! Oh, God! Ah! Ah! I have to save him!